Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Danny Wu, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I spent some time trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to do after having the nice podcast with Matt Moore last week on the playoffs, and we were so deep into that, I didn't really want to go in that ground again, even though things have, of course, changed in the last week. So I wanted to do something different, and with the NCAA tournament coming up, I'm going to talk about that at a future time with with a guest that would probably not be a surprise. And with all of that, it was kind of a time for a different conversation, and I know one of my favorite people to talk to when you want to have a different conversation is Nathaniel Friedman, writes for GQ, one of the co-founders of Free Darko, one of my favorite sites of all time. And it started out with a question that I've been perplexed by for about a week now, and then got into a million other topics from the age limit and how that affects the league to how you build around stars to what stars are worth building around, all of those sorts of things. It's a great conversation. It's hard to summarize because it really does ebb and flow well. And it's brought to you by BetDSI. You can go to BetDSI and then use the promo code MADGM, M-A-D-G-M, for 200% member bonus and more bracket contest entries if you're looking to be involved in the NCAA tournament. It's a great way to do that. And then you can also check out TrueCar. It is a great way to buy new and used cars. You can check that out with TrueCar. This conversation runs a little bit over an hour. I, I love it. I think it, it goes in some interesting directions. And for those of you who enjoy this sort of feel, I think you'll really dig this because we just we just go with it. We just we had no plan. We just went for an hour on wherever we thought it, the conversation needed to go. And I think you'll really enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. No problem. Thanks for having me. I thought you would be a good person to talk to about this crisis of sorts that I'm having mentally where Nate and I for Dunked On did our awards podcast. So that was technically speaking through the end of February, but we did it this week due to timing. And I still have, I still feel like when he's engaged and, and everything like that, and we saw this a little bit on Wednesday night, which made it even more appropriate that we're recording that LeBron James is the best player on the planet, that he is the best basketball player on the planet. Yet for the first time in the whole experience I've ever done, either in-season or postseason All-NBA teams, I didn't have him on the first team. And so I was thinking about, A, reconciling that, but then B, also how I'm a, I'm... I guess I'm a little bit okay with it with the idea that happened last year with the MVP, which I think was the dam breaking where I fully supported Russell Westbrook. I thought he deserved the MVP award, but it did not mean that I thought he was even necessarily a top five player in the NBA. Right. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, obviously. 
for starters, I mean, when you get into best versus most valuable, I mean, no one knows what that stuff means anyway, and it's just sort of arbitrarily decided uh, in a different way every single year. For one, I think there's always going to be LeBron fatigue. You don't want to give LeBron the MVP every year. Apparently, you don't even necessarily feel nuts about putting him on the first team um, All-NBA every year. Or I could see how that would be setting in for some people. I'm not saying you're doing that, but, you know, there is something to the novelty of not just checking LeBron James every year without thinking about it one way or the other. I think with MVP, you know, again, we don't know what that award means. It's never been defined. So when it comes down to it, what makes people vote for someone for MVP? Well, it's often narrative. It's often team record. It's sometimes whose turn it is, ostensibly. And I think the thing with LeBron is there are LeBron years that are better than other LeBron years. I mean, that, that's indisputable. There are years LeBron teams are better than other, other LeBron teams. That's indisputable. And now as I'm talking through this, I kind of feel like maybe with LeBron, we measure him relative to himself, and we're willing to sort of not knock him down a notch, but sort of take it off here from LeBron, but he doesn't appear to be having a year that is stellar um, by his standards. That said, I mean, it's hard to do that for this year. And I know defensively he's, uh, well, we can talk about LeBron's defense at some other point, but it's just, uh, you know, the year LeBron's having, and they had that rough stretch, but you know, he looks as good as he's ever looked. I mean, in some ways, he looks better than he's ever looked. So it's just very, I mean, I guess I'm interested in hearing from you, like, why is LeBron not all first-team NBA this year? The biggest way that it has changed for me, defense is a part of it, but it's that there are, mm-hmm. he has this, for a long time, unique role where he is a forward who has an outsized role. He is the definitive player in terms of his team's offense, always has. Like, that is one of the elements of LeBron everywhere he's been, whether it was those early years in Cleveland, including the year that he took those guys to the finals when that team wasn't very good, the years in Miami, even though there were a ton of other good players around him playing with Kyrie in Cleveland. So he has had that advantage of being the linchpin, and there aren't that many forwards that are truly the linchpin there. And even guys like Oscar Robertson, who was forward-sized, he guarded guards, so he was a guard. LeBron had that. Well, Giannis does too. Giannis is the definitive player for his team offensively this year. And while his team has not been as good offensively as the Cavs have been, I would say that their support talent is substantially worse on that end of the floor. I mean, while Kevin Love, when he played, was not a perfect all-around guy, he's a spectacular offensive talent. And guys like JR, a good support guy, Kyle Korver when they play together, which I think they should do more, things like that. And with Davis... I think what it it boiled down to, and I do think that I draw a difference between most outstanding and most valuable for All-NBA, which is a little bit esoteric, but it's just something that I do. And with Davis, especially after Cousins went down, but even before that, it felt to me every time out like the Pelicans needed a good game or even a great game for Anthony Davis to win. And he was doing that a lot. He has some real clunkers and he is less consistent than LeBron, which is a real demerit and it should be considered that way. But I feel like he is elevating his team more than LeBron is. But that also might just be a a different form of LeBron fatigue where we've seen it so much from him that I just don't appreciate it as much as I should. Yeah, I think it's it's very hard to imagine a LeBron-less LeBron team. Uh, that sounds like a very metaphysical well, proposition. Especially, right? especially this one, because with Kyrie, you could kind of go, oh, well, they're going to you know, give him the ball a lot. And because, especially this year, he's played so much. That is, in some ways, the strangest thing about this year is that LeBron has actually played substantially more minutes 
than everybody else he's really competing with for MVP and whatever else because he's playing in every game and he's playing a lot of minutes. I don't exactly understand why they're doing that. I mean, I I think what I've heard is that he just wants to. But Mm -hmm. last year, that was a part of the argument for Russell Westbrook and a part of the argument against most notably Kawhi was that Russell Westbrook was playing a lot more minutes. And so that's value because if you're a good player, the more you play, the less you have to have a backup out there. So LeBron has that, he has that Aaron was quiver, especially now that Davis, unfortunately, which I did not consider when I acknowledged this because it was before it happened, the, the ankle sprain, we'll see how long he's at with that. But it's just with LeBron that he's still incredibly special, but that element that derived his value, so there were two things. One was that, and then at his best years in Miami, he was also a wonderful defensive player, and he just hasn't brought that game in, game out this year as a help guy, as a man-to-man guy, and that's fine. I think that he understands and prioritizes things properly i think it's a good thing for him but that is value that he's not providing yeah no that i think that is the thing it's not I mean, the minutes thing is that gets into like the weird mumbo jumbo of kind of you know voter rationalizations that I, I again i just have trouble even parsing that in a, in a logical way because i feel like there are many you can always come up with a reason why someone should win the mvp and why someone else shouldn't win the mvp and not to be overly cryptic about it i think the defensive thing is a major knock against lebron i understand that I guess what I just want to say about a LeBron with LeBron team is I don't think we fully ever think about just how bad a LeBron team would be without LeBron. And I think, you know, you can see in very specific, like very tangible ways what Anthony Davis is doing, how he's like shoulder and float on that team. And you can imagine just subtracting him and you would have a mess. LeBron does so much that I don't even think we fully comprehend just how much LeBron's doing at a given time. Like his effect on the game still is like so kind of like manifold that, and again, I I feel like I'm just coming with a new uh, elaborate rationalization for MVP, but you know, his, his value, you always hear that LeBron gives you the single best chance of beating another team of any player in the NBA. Like that's kind of a truism, but I think he also kind of gives more shape and structure to a team individually than any other player in the NBA. I mean, except for like Westbrook or something. And that's not saying it's necessarily a good thing that someone does that. But I think in LeBron's case, like he does provide that framework or that foundation for the entirety of the team on offense. You know, it's not just like Davis where he's playing a role. He's actually kind of informing and undergirding everything. And that's why I think like his value, he has a different level of value than other guys do. Does that make any sense? It does. And I think the best encapsulation of it that I have is who Cleveland has played this year at point guard and that they have survived it because Jose Calderon, Isaiah Thomas, when Isaiah Thomas was truly awful, Derek Rose, sometimes they would even go with just two guards that weren't even really point guards there. And the only way a team can do that is if they have LeBron James, James Harden, somebody like that who can defend a different position, but still run the show. And they have gotten this year, I mean, we thought, uh, at least I thought to a degree, that the worst case scenario there was the year that Kyrie was out until after Christmas. And you're like, oh my God, look at look at what they've been doing offensively. LeBron has been that guy. This year, that kind of surrounding talent, like the guys who can run the show when it's not LeBron, are weaker than any year I can think of with him, at least going as far back as like Booby Gibson on some of those late Cavs teams. There just are not that many other guys that can create for themselves. There are a lot of guys on this team in Cleveland who can capitalize on the opportunities created for them. But if LeBron wasn't on the team, or if you would say you replace him with a league average forward, that guy isn't going to be able to do it at all. And that's where you get into the other thing about LeBron, which is it's not as if LeBron really 
just plays forward. You know, his his role, I mean, you can say it's about Giannis too to some degree, though I think we've kind of overhyped just how, just how, I mean, I think we've kind of, I think Giannis is this very singular player, but I feel like the whole Giannis is playing point guard beam has always been a little misleading. You know, like he had, he does what he does and that team sort of like moves around him. Um, I think LeBron is in a similar position, but what LeBron does and how LeBron makes the team move around him is so much more complex than just saying like this guy's your nominal forward, but he's also a point forward. You know, like he basically determines the offense himself on every possession, and it's he almost like he's the one like manipulating the team at all times, which you know is is basically he's like a super super high level point guard in that regard. And I think I, do, I I guess it's also the thing too where I would be like remiss in my duties as myself. I didn't also point out that you know positions don't matter. It should be front court and back court. Like it isn't the All Star game. That's a whole other thing. Or it should just be All NBA should just be the five best guys because if it was the five best guys, LeBron would absolutely make my list. But because yeah. because he's behind to me, I off the top of my head in terms of most outstanding, it would he would probably be fifth or fourth. Either one of those, I haven't. I, he'd be behind AD and Giannis obviously because the forwards, and then Harden because Harden is to me the front runner for MVP right now, and he's been phenomenal. If we want to look outstanding instead, and Curry is a close call, but he hasn't played nearly as much. A lot of other things there. And because by virtue of how those assignments and one way to fudge that, which might actually end up happening, granted, I think LeBron would be over those guys on a lot of people's lists. I think I am the outlier and acknowledge that. But sliding AD to center, if he, especially if he ends this year strong, yeah, right. I, I'm, I'm, I'm largely cool with that. And the other way that they could resolve this, which is sort of what I think they should do with All-Star, is just you can have some parts as positions, but then just have a lot more wild cards than they have right now. Because you're trying to, in the All-Star game, you know, reward excellence, the players the fans want to see. And in All-NBA, you're trying to reflect the season that occurred. You're not trying to build an actual basketball team. That team is never in the All-Star game they're going to play, but they're never going to play in a game that counts. The All-NBA team is never going to play. It's not like they have to battle some intergalactic thing for supremacy. So it's not building the best possible basketball team. It's who are the five best players this year and then and then 6 through 10 and then 11 through 15. No, that's very true. I mean, and there's no, you know, it's not some sort of like, well, it's, I mean, it's, I don't know, it's not, it was center it is, it was in the All-Star game, but there is kind of like a weird, not to bring up a um, possibly inappropriate metaphor, but there is kind of like a affirmative action type thing going on where you've got to get some recognition for certain kinds of players, therefore you need positional slots. I think at this point it does make a certain amount of sense. Also, given the way the game is going, you know, you just don't really have the same need to express all the different possible positions in an all-star team in the same way. You know, you're not sort of saying like, we're going to hand out, it's not like the Oscars or something where it's like best this, best this. They don't give, the awards are not like best center, best power forward. Like that's not how the All-NBA team has ever really been thought of, you know? Right. You know, it's, 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 and there's also a like, separation. Like, sorry, you're, you're not you're not giving awards for specialization, is I guess what right. I'm saying. And, and the other massive, massive element here, which I'm so encouraged that teams have facilitated this development, is the separation between offensive and defensive roles. So Ben Simmons is the best encapsulation of this that exists right now in the league. Ben Simmons, mm-hmm. offensively, is their point guard. He does, he initiates a lot of the pick and roll. He ha- generally handles the ball in transition, assuming somebody else doesn't, you know, grab and go or something like that. But defensively, sometimes he guards ones, but a lot of times he just guards the other forward, you know, whoever Robert Covington's not guarding. And often Robert Covington is guarding ones now. You know, they go all over the place. And so if that's the way, because you want to maximize a player's skill set. So 
if a player's good with the ball in his hands and he's a bad shooter, put the ball in his hands. I mean, seen that with Brandon Ingram recently with the Lakers. Giannis, that has been a key point of his success. All sorts of those players, whether they're at the high end or a little bit of a lower end. So James Harden's role offensively is as much of point guard, quote unquote, as anybody else in the league, but he often defends too. So why are we going to argue it based on positions, which are or should be, at least to me, a defensive qualification, if anything? Okay, this is a real, a real wild conversation here. So you know how when we talk about, again, this players whose role is not a strictly defined specialization the way we previously thought about position, but about sort of like contextually what they're doing on the team. Sure. You know, would you ever put a player in a slot that is a slot they could be playing, you know, nominally be playing, but decline to, and therefore they're, you know, I, I guess it's like this. It's like if, if we're saying the positions are increasingly arbitrary designations or increasingly fluid or you guys just want to find them, does that then raise the possibility that like there is no question LeBron James could play the point guard if he wanted to? Would you ever put LeBron as a point guard on all NBA team? I wouldn't, but I would be okay with other people doing it. For me, your position is who you defend, and so LeBron largely guards forwards. And with and you could make a, a very good argument that now with modern switching systems, who your base assignment is matters less than it ever has. So then that goes sure. in the other direction as well. You know, like sure, LeBron or basically anybody else, especially even now with bigs, now that some teams are comfortable switching one through four, one through five, you might have this guy that's your primary assignment and maybe you're on them 40 to 60 percent of the time but you're sure as heck not on them 80 percent of the time not that idea of like a cover corner in football who just follows that receiver wherever he goes and that's really their responsibility basketball doesn't work that way anymore because a there aren't that many players who are so good at that that it's justified and b because generally speaking a switch approach just creates fewer seams for a team to exploit. So versatility in some ways matters more than that one-on-one excellence, though it certainly can be helpful. Yeah, I mean, the more, so the more we talk about this, the more it seems like positions, at least sort of nominally, were always about specialization or about like a niche set of responsibilities. The more players start to blur that, the more teams start to blur that, the less it makes sense it makes to think about handing out awards in terms of specialization. And I think what I was saying before about, you know, giving someone the all-star slot or the all-NBA slot for center because you want to recognize that someone's playing center well. Uh, well, one of the reasons why that disappeared on the all-star team was because there just weren't enough guys doing that specialized form of basketball well enough that it made sense to uh, reward anyone for it. And I think, yeah, I mean, I don't, I, part, you know, part, of me, part of me does balk at just saying put the five best guys on there. But I'm not really sure why, because like I said, and I know, I know, you know, we agree that there's not some hypothetical team being assembled to actually play together, even in some sort of simulated universe. But I don't know. It's 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 very hard for me to to look at the way we give these to look at the way the league's headed and think that we should be still be thinking so much in terms of slots the way we once did. I think the problem. Who's who? Who? I'm, I'm being really dumb here, maybe. But who would your five be from the East? Well, so my if if we're picking a so my first team center because I did do the format for all NBA was Joel Embiid. I think Embiid is the best center who plays center in the league. 
But that gets weird too because my second and third team guys were Horford and and Aldridge, two guys who often don't start at the five, but often close (laughs) at the five. And so you're saying they're going, well, what is this? I mean, they can play both positions. I mean, if Kevin Garnett were a couple years younger, that's probably what he would have ended up doing more often, like he did later in his career. Those sorts of circumstances. Actually, that one of the weird dynamics that doesn't get appreciated as much, from what I recall, and I would love to go back and watch footage of this. Everybody got excited at the second half of Carl Anthony Towns' rookie year with his defense. What I recall is that Garnett was the center on that team defensively, and Towns was the four, but then offensively they flipped it because Garnett was just taking those mid-range jumpers all the time. And so it was like, hey, look, Towns, you know, they defended well when he's been on the floor, and the answer kind of was to a point, well, that's because he didn't play the position that he was going to play the rest of his career. And he played next to KG, one of the best defensive guys of the modern era. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, and then, I mean, and then, then, well, then it gets kooky because if it ends up being some sort of LeBron versus Embiid question, I don't even know to start wrapping my head around making that choice because, yeah, like you, you want to recognize that Embiid in an era where, I mean, you're seeing kind of a resurgence of centers in some ways, but at a time when, when again, specialization is generally not the most important thing in the game. Like Embiid is sort of single hand, not single hand, like again, the hype train is still in my brain. Embiid is, is excels at it in a way that's like generational. And you don't want to say, well, let's just put LeBron on here because he should be on here. When you've got a guy who clearly is doing, he's like a master of that art. And I don't know God, this is really kind of a minefield, isn't it? Well, it gets gets even thornier when you think about other centers because the players who I think most people would agree, after a round, wherever you want to put it with Embiid, who are straight fives, so not counting Anthony Davis, not counting LaMarcus, not counting Horford, the most talented players on that list would probably involve in some order Carl Anthony Towns, DeMarcus Cousins, and Nikola Jokic. All three of those guys are amazing players players. They're amazing basketball players. And exactly zero of them, other than Embiid, are good, consistent defenders. And that is generally known, and I would say is still true, to be the most important thing that a center does. So how do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile people who are amazing, but aren't amazing at what used to be the most important thing that their position did? Yeah, and then, I mean, especially too, when we're saying that the the knock on LeBron this year is defense, well, now we're talking about these other players and essentially saying they are so good that the defense would not necessarily be what determined their place in this hierarchy, nor would it be what necessarily like disqualified them from somehow, you know, being as high as we want to put them on the list. And that, that's, I think, I mean, this, this is, this is kind of the outstanding thing too. It's like, at what point is someone so valuable on offense that their defense, defensive deficiencies just, don't even enter the picture. I mean, that that was you know that's sort of what helped what's held hard back um, in some ways over the years, but he's still been up there. You know, you can imagine uh, you know, last year if Westbrook hadn't had the year he had, like that would have been Harden's award. Even though you know it's, and I think you know Harden's defense obviously is kind of one of these things where it's a running joke that people don't want to let go of, even though it's been improving <laughs> steadily over the years. Um, but, you know, he is not like a fearsome defender, and yet he still would have won MVP last year if Westbrook hadn't gone all Westbrook on the world. And Westbrook's MVP is a whole other thing, but warrants an entirely different discussion. So there's that, too. 
There is that too. And it's also strange that so many of the other players in the MVP conversation haven't had strong defensive years. Harden has also benefited a lot from the change in scheme. Houston switches more aggressively than anyone else. And so if all he has to do is just kind of switch every time and stay with his guy enough in that way, I think that's actually better for him. It makes the reads easier. In weird ways, we actually saw this with the Clippers last year. It can make it easier to pay attention on defense because you just know what you're doing every time. And then if you get into an isolation spot and nobody's coming, then you go, okay, I can lock in for this like five seconds. That's a lot different to do than I'm going to lock on a trail around this guy who navigates like 10 screens. Harden sucks at that. He has always sucked at that. And they just <laughs> yep. handle handle it less. But you look at some of the other players in the MVP conversation. LeBron is having still his weakest year defensively. I still think he probably he provides more value than Harden to be sure. But then I'm sure, you know, so Anthony Davis is having, he's been solid defensively this year, certainly not a defensive player of the year candidate or anything like that. Giannis has been better, but the Bucks A, for the first half of the year, when they, partially because they had Jason Kidd and their defensive schemes made no sense. It's not like the Bucks were a great defensive team or he was centering, like he's the reason their defense was good because their defense wasn't good. And it's a team effort now. They have a lot of good defensive talent and now they're starting to get into a scheme that makes sense. So you're seeing they're going, okay, we've always said defense is important. And I think some of this might just be Kawhi also basically missing this year is, well, Defense is important, but none of these guys really play enough of it for it to be a deal maker or a deal breaker for any of them. And that is super weird. And also you have the rise of the defensive specialist. I mean, someone like Robeson, it is no longer considered poor form for, you know, to have a defensive specialist being kind of the, if not the linchpin of your defense, but being the one who really is going to shoulder that load and, you know, guard your best wing. Whereas, you know, in days of yore, the expectation was if you were the best player on offense, you also picked up the best player on defense, you know, position permitting. And now it's kind of the opposite where it's like people have realized that maybe you don't want your best offensive player also being the guy who has to go the hardest on defense. It's a much better allocation of resources overall, though a player who can do both and not suffer is massively valuable. It's just that those guys aren't really around right now. I would say in certain ways, and one of the weirder MVP arguments I made, I didn't have him number one or anything, I think out of fourth, was with Jimmy Butler because that was compiled basically before his meniscus injury because he has been one of only, you could argue two, maybe with Taj Gibson, good defensive players on Minnesota, but and he has helped make them better, but he didn't like make them good defensively by himself. He just made them better than awful, which is certainly valuable. And then offensively, he's helped a lot. I think he's he's such a capable offensive player. He and I think Jimmy Butler, as as much as he has maximized his potential to a degree, and I, he has had a better career than I ever anticipated. He isn't to me at, at the talent level and the impact level on a possession by possession basis of the other guys we talked about earlier on this list. Yeah, and that's that's kind of where I get back to my whole quasi-mystical, you know, what is the LeBron effect? Like, how much does LeBron fundamentally inform every single thing that happens on a basketball court? And that, that to me, is kind of the, um, I don't know, is, does that correlate with, like, what we call dominance? I don't know. But, yeah, Butler just does not seem to me, he just doesn't feel like an MVP. And that's a horrible thing to say because it's so far from having any sort of quasi-objective justification for it. But, I mean, that's what makes Kawhi so interesting. Kawhi is the proverbial best two-way player. And for all we're saying about how defenses and the way we think about defenses have shifted, you know, Kawhi is kind of a throwback. I feel like this. I feel like defense doesn't count against you the way it once did, but that only makes it 
only makes it count more for you if you can do it, if that makes sense. Like you're not going to really dock a guy because he's not an elite defender, but if someone is an elite defender and an elite offensive player, then that's almost more notable than it was in the past. You know, it's going to make Kawhi a perennial MVP candidate. It makes you, you know, stand even out, though, for like, sure. Yeah, yeah. And I think because that again, helped like, LeBron it's, it's the, for it's the, resor- it's, it's the resources thing. You know, like if you're willing and able to to do that much and expend that that much, that many resources – you know, that is that is in some like very crude kind of like labor based construction of how we think about um, the allocation of basketball work. Like that's a lot to do and a lot to do well. You know, maybe God, I don't know how I'm ending up here, but that's in some ways again this this idea of like resources and responsibilities. If we're done with specialization and sort of rewarding the guy who's the best at the thing or or saying saying. What is it you're trying to do and how well are yeah, you doing Yeah, I think it? it's that we're, we're done with categorization, I think, more than specialization. Right. Specialization's there. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Specialization, yeah, right. Specialization is the way I'm putting it. But I mean, but it is, it is that there was a, there was a way in which like players used to be evaluated relative to their category and how well they were fulfilling their category. And now it has to become something more complex, I think, which is still contextual because uh, how can it not be contextual now when teams are so much kind of like these universal into themselves, but it kind of does become like, how much are you trying to do? How much of an impact do you have on your team's overall trajectory at any given time? And how well are you doing the things you're entrusted with? And I think like that's, I mean, that's, you know, part of part two, part of also the appeal of Harden. And I think in a very kind of crass way, Westbrook last year was just that so much of the team's production and so much of, yeah, so much of the team's production just was them or went through them. And, you know, with Westbrook, you can make the argument that, like, well, was that necessarily, is that the smartest and most constructive way to run a basketball team? Sort of up for debate. But I think with Harden and the way that team works and the role he plays in it, it's like what's mind-blowing about him is just how much output he has. And and I think, you know, from this, like, resources standpoint, it's like he's just simply doing so much for them in a way that a, tri- a player that was more traditionally categorized, just you would not look at things in those terms. That's a great point. Before we move on, I want to take a quick moment to tell you about BetDSI. It's that time of the year again. March Madness takes over, and with that, NCAA Bracketology is game on. The BetDSI Million Dollar Bracket Challenge is right around the corner, and you can win big this NCAA basketball season. Compete head-to-head in the BetDSI Bracket Challenge for your chance to take home guaranteed prizes and a chance to win a million dollars. Not surprising when it's called the Million Dollar Bracket Challenge. I'm really excited to to watch it this year. I've been less familiar with college. I will, of course, be filling out a bracket with BetDSI. It's going to be fun to do. And what I'm looking forward to is from the NBA context, but also the, the NCAA tournament is just incredibly fun to watch and enjoy it. And for many people, you can add stakes and make it more interesting with BetDSI. And it's a great place to do it because they've been in business for over 20 years and are top rated on review sites. And they also have an easy to use fast playing interface, which is great depending on how much you want to drop in and spend time with it, that it's easy to use. And if you're interested, you can bet games as they go. And so that changes the dynamics. If you think you got a better feel for where it is going than other people do, you can take advantage in that way. And you can do that throughout the tournament as well. They have a built-in reputation for fast payment of winnings, which is exceedingly important in this business. And they have great customer service. So you can get a free bracket entry and a $25 NCAA tournament bet just for registering. But you also get a 200% member bonus and more bracket contest entries on your first deposit if you use the promo code MADGM, M-A-D-G-M. So you should definitely check it out. And if you do, use that MADGM, M-A-D-G-M promo code because you can 
Enjoy the tournament in a very different way. Don't just sit on the sidelines this March Madness. Use the promo code MADGM at BetDSI and start winning today. I was trying to think of the reason why Jimmy Butler feels out of place in this conversation, and I think I got to the best summation I can do, which is that a team in, in the regular season, teams don't really adjust their game plan very much for a specific opponent because they just don't have the time. In the playoffs, they obviously do because he played the same team a maximum of seven times. Jimmy mm-hmm. Butler is probably among the best players in the entire NBA where you don't even make that big adjustments because he's on the other team. He just makes what you want to do a lot harder. Whereas if you try to do the same thing you always do against LeBron, against Harden, against Steph, Giannis and AD to a point, you're just going to get run over. And I think that's why he doesn't fit into that because you don't have to throw everything out with him. You have to, you just do what you're doing and you just know it's not going to work as much of the time. And then though, I mean, that comes back to this whole idea of, of these players and their, their role on the court being somehow singular or hard to replicate or hard to sort of game plan against in a generic way. And then you get to a really weird place, which is, and this this is, again, I think this is part of the case for Harden. Are we in part saying the more fluid you are, the more you can take on, the more impressed we are by you? And the more, you know, the more you can, the more you can sort of... Yeah, and that's also you know, about like, opportunity, too. Yeah. And, well, it's like the more you can be this constitutive force, like the more the team sort of in a very original way is built around you and shaped by you. Like that's, that's yeah, that's why the Butler, why Butler feels like less impressive. And I guess I would say like that is LeBron is in some ways kind of like the OG of that. You know, it's like what's what's kind of the the precedent in the NBA of someone like Harden having the kind of role he has. Like I would probably argue LeBron. That's fair. And I mean, LeBron being the kind of the the dynamic of being both the lead scorer and the primary playmaker for everyone else, that is a very different archetype than somebody like Magic Johnson or even the big guys of the past like Shaq and Kareem and Wilt and all that. Like it's, it's a very different role than a lot of those guys had. There are certainly some examples, but the combination of scoring and creation for others is what makes them special. And Curry is is in that conversation as well. And in his best years, he was better than those guys at the same thing. It was just that this year he hasn't been as good as he was in the, especially the year where he was the unanimous MVP. And I think that was justified. But what makes all of this also very challenging is how you look at it moving forward. Because like when I was higher on Giannis as a draft prospect than most people were just because I saw a guy with a high ceiling. I, I watched him a little bit in his Greek League stuff, and he just looked capable to me. And capability is very important because you're never going to get a fair calibrator here, whether it's players coming from high school or whatever level of college or Euro like he did. But I think you, what you just have to look for is guys that can that have the capability, that make good decisions, that have good vision, things like that. So we looked and went through that list. LeBron was drafted number one, one overall. He was unquestioned that. Curry and Harden were in the same draft. Not only were neither one of them a, like a top, I think Harden went fourth. Is that something about that right? And then Curry was, I think he was third or fourth. Third or he, was, fourth. he was third, then Rubio and Flynn were four or five, I think, and then Curry was six, something like that. Mm-hmm. And so you have all of that, and neither Curry nor Harden won rookie of the year, Tyreek Evans did. And so you have all of these different elements. And so it's like, are we good enough yet at predicting there are only probably, even in the year and now where we're getting to maximize these players better than ever before, are we going to get better at evaluating them at the lower levels? I mean, this also gets into, God, this is like a Socratic dialogue. It's kind of making me dizzy. This also gets into the question of the kind of nature nurture with players. Uh, while I'm, I, one of the things that fascinates me about, you know, Steph, 
and Harden, although in different ways, is they also needed to have the right coach and the right system that was based around them to actually be as good as they are. I'm not saying they wouldn't be great or that Harden wasn't great before uh, D'Antoni showed up, but you know, D'Antoni built a system around where James Harden likes to do stuff. And he was only able to build the system he was because Harden could do as many things as he can. But it, it, it turns into this very bizarre thing where it's when we're evaluating players for the draft, how do we possibly have the foresight to envision a system that is so completely tailored to their strengths that it makes them elite players? I mean, that's just like seven levels of like time traveling hypotheticals. But then it's like, well, what are you looking for then? Because then it's, you know, do you just, it's, you know, either, you know what, what are the, you know, it's a best available versus deed. I wonder if you almost get into a, a different thing where it's like most skilled versus most impactful. You know, like, do you pick the guy who seemingly has like a ton of different capabilities, though it's not quite clear where they're all headed yet? Or do you pick the guy with a very clear, well-defined game, albeit maybe one that's somewhat limited, you know, relative to this kind of new model we're working with of just how kind of robust players can be and say, well, I know what this guy does. I can slot him into my team and he will make the team better by virtue of doing a thing that I understand in a way that's a high level embodiment of that. Or do you say, okay, I don't really know what's going to happen with this player fully, but they seem talented enough that maybe I could work with them and around them to create something that's going to be potentially even more profound than just, you know, the Jimmy Butler scenario. It gets even more complicated when you think about whether that player is good enough to do that at a level necessary to get whatever success you think is appropriate. So Brandon Ingram is a player that I, I talked about with this before, that I think he's a lot better with the ball in his hands. And he has helped key a, a nice run for the Lakers. And incidentally, he went out basically right as Alonzo Ball came back. But I don't know yet. And this is I don't know. This is not I'm not sure or anything like that. It is I do not know whether he can do that at a high enough level to fuel a successful team. He can do it. I think it is the best use of him as a player if we're talking about asset maximization or, you know, like using a machine to do what it's best at if we want to think about players that way for this purpose. But in order to be the best NBA team you can be, you have to play with four other players and you have to reach a certain level. And so certain players don't mesh as well with others and certain players do that. Mm -hmm. Like I was, Nate and I were recording on, we were doing our point guard rankings and a point I brought up in that was to me, Russell Westbrook has less scheme versatility than a lot of the other really good point guards because he needs the ball in his hands. He's not a great off ball shooter. You know, he, he can cut and do other things certainly, but he's wonderful with the ball in his hands. So it's just like, okay. Okay, you can use him in this role, but then when you add kind of better stuff around him offensively, it's not as much of an additive for him as it is for some of the other guys. And then I'm like, well, how fair is it to criticize him for that if he is elevating the team that's in front of him? Something I've been thinking about a lot, and that's partly it's around Dan Tony and how we figured out how to use or has figured out at least and stretches how to use Harden and Paul together in some ways too, and this is kind of a take around the difference between the Warriors pre Durant and post Durant. It's really hard to figure out how to fit together complex players in a way that is tailored to all of their strengths or, you know, as you're saying about Ingram, like their kind of ideal function. And I just wonder, I mean, who, how many coaches are there who are capable of formulating something that's just like that's sophisticated? That's why I am a total D'Antoni stan, but I think part of what makes him so fascinating is he, he seems to have like an endless capacity 
for doing that, you know, for saying like, how can I fit these pieces together in a way that maximizes them? What is it going to yield? I have no idea. Is it going to yield something we've never seen before? Maybe, but that's kind of my job. You know, you see, I think, I think um, the pre, the pre, the pre Durant warriors, you know, you saw both Draymond and Steph being totally maximized by that system. It wasn't kind of either or. I don't know. It's, it's, my brain just like melted. Well, and it's all, it's, it's about actualizing what a guy does well, what a guy doesn't do well. And another example of this to me is how James Harden is really bad at getting ball denied that basically if he doesn't have it in his hands to start a possession and you put somebody who's very zealous about it, Josh Richardson actually did a nice job on him. Danny Green at certain moments in time, especially when he was healthy in the second round last year, I think was very important this. He just didn't provide that kind of energy. And you could say it's because he has to expend so much or it could be just because he doesn't focus on that or whatever. And so part of why basketball is so fun is that there isn't necessarily a definitive singular right answer to this. It is all context-dependent. And it's not only context-dependent for us, it's context-dependent for the players themselves too because there could be personality dynamics, there could just be even specific spots on the floor, like maybe two guys, they actually coexist from a ball perspective, but then that forces one into the wrong spots and they're not good at making them from there. And the ecosystem is always so complicated that, yeah, adding better talent is always going to help. And I wonder, I will wonder for the rest of my life what would have happened with OKC if they had kept all those guys. But success is never guaranteed just because you put the best guys together. No, and I'm getting like really weird and fatalistic now. And I'm beginning to wonder if really some players get the chance to be maximized and some don't. And sometimes a player... Uh, and maybe you know maybe we're not talking about you know superstars. Maybe we are talking about role players. And this is sort of what's made the Spurs so remarkable is their ability to maximize role players. And some guys just never get that. And you can have this wayward, unremarkable career when maybe if you've been on a team that was smart enough to know how to take what you do well and integrate it with other people doing what they do well, then you would have had a more rewarding and celebrated career, which that's not really here nor there. It's not like I'm like concerned so much about the, you know, kind of like the self-esteem of journeyman NBA players, but there is like a way in which all this just gets like, not just contextual, but almost like historically contingent, you know, Mm -hmm. that, because I think, the, you know, the weird thing, though, too, is like if you take the Thunder team, you know, the Harden-Westbrook-Durant Thunder team, you know, we, we, we know sort of how they fit together at that stage in the career. And you had Harden playing very much that Ginobili role, which they basically, if I remember correctly, would run Ginobili plays for him, essentially, because he was that sort of same sort of like flashing playmaker who could provide that kind of like connective tissue between the other guys but if you look at where they've all ended up i can't imagine those three playing together now it doesn't even make sense and it's not just like a volume thing i mean it's also you know back to what we we're saying either russ sort of dictates a certain overall structure or system harden clearly is at his best when he's in this very very particular system and I think, you know, Durant is kind of the guy who you could put Kevin Durant anywhere on any team in any system and he would be phenomenally valuable and operate at peak capacity, which is, I mean, I think maybe that's another totally weird thing is like, do you want to every year say who is the least dependent on context to be as great as they are? Yeah. And, and Durant is certainly in that conversation to a point. So is LeBron because LeBron just changes the circumstances around him right. to be a LeBron team. 
which is a, a yeah. good argument for him. One point that I thought of, I had this up because I wanted to make sure I got the numbers right. Curry was seventh and Harden was third. This is how the, so 2009 draft. So about nine years ago, not all the way there yet. Four players from the top 10 are two MVP, two guys. Well, Harden's probably going to win this year. Curry has already won twice. Two perennial all-stars are close to it in DeMar DeRozan and Blake Griffin. Four guys who are out of the league entirely, Thabit, Flynn, Jordan Hill, and Brandon Jennings. Jennings is playing in the G League, but he's not in the NBA. And then you have two in the middle, Ricky Rubio and Tyreek Evans. Like, that is such a bizarre distribution of players, because you have intense value, and all of those, all four of those guys who were the all-star level brought real value to the teams that drafted them, because Harden, yes, he only played on team, but he helped get them to an NBA Finals, but also, what they got in return for the trade, I mean, Steven Adams has been important for them moving forward, they didn't end up getting as much from Kevin Martin, and then, like, Hashim Thabit was basically just gone, and the disparity between those is pretty striking. I've been thinking a lot about players that do poorly after being drafted, part because of the recent stuff around the NBA engaging directly with high school players. I was writing about it this week, and it is kind of staggering how players going to college really doesn't help you predict any better if they're going to be great or not. I mean, I know, um, and I was talking about this with my editor, you know, there is the whole, like, oh, what if you draft Kwame Brown? Kwame Brown is not the only top pick who's been horrible. And there's this, and there's, ac- there's actually a couple papers, like academic papers that have been written about how well, you, drafting you are just we were just you were just as likely in the heyday of preps to pros to have a bust college pick as a bust high school pick, and yet this myth persists that somehow evaluating high school talent is like shaky and strange, and college is where you really start to understand where, how the rubber hits the road, and it's just not true. And it's it's so it's funny. Well, and it's it's and also. It's, on that note, a lot of times it's the same GMs that make those mistakes both ways. I mean, Michael Jordan was key in, you know, like that team drafting Kwame Brown. They also drafted Adam Morrison, which was one of, ended up being one of the worst college to pro reads that exists. Another one of those is Derek Williams. You know, Derek Williams was drafted second. If he had been drafted out of high school, he would have been much closer to where his actual value was. Johnny Flynn is like this too. Those guys, for whatever reason, or Jimmer or any number of guys, those ones get largely ignored, whereas some of the other, the high-profile high school busts didn't. And it's not like for a lot of these players who have succeeded who went to college, that college was an essential part of it. For certain guys, sure. Then that's why I think it makes more sense as an avenue rather than the avenue. Because for some guys, yeah, if you want to do that, that development time, Damian Lillard, I, you know, he certainly wasn't a highly touted prospect, but that he developed, he showed it there. And having college is a good thing, good thing there, but we shouldn't just be throwing everybody into it. I don't think that makes any sense. That is an interesting question because yeah, Lillard, Lillard is such a weird version of that argument because my stance on that is, sure, if you open up the draft slash the G League to everyone, why would someone go to college? And it is true that with Lillard, if Lillard had come out of high school, he would not have been, would he even, where would he have been drafted in a high school? Do do we have any idea? He probably wouldn't have been drafted. And if he'd gone straight to the, I think that's the thinking though, right? The thinking, I mean, we're getting kind of far afield, but the thinking is, is if you're a player with NBA prospect, with NBA, you know, NBA potential, you would get even better seasoning, the developmental league, and you would get paid versus going to college, which is in no way, you know, which clearly does not in a one-to-one way 
Kentucky, <laughs> unless you like go to Kentucky, it doesn't in a one-to-one way prepare you for for NBA play. But it's, I think there's also a part too where to go back to this college players who are good, you know, like a Flynn or like a Morrison or whatever, they often are being lauded for doing again a very specific thing or kind of thing well and you know i think part of what makes picks you know like like the harden pick so good was that because i thought you know i'm not like the cam Kyle's basketball but i remember you know in that draft i was a little surprised he went that high but i think we can all like hats off to sam presti he's a very smart guy and very forward thinking in the way he kind of saw certain things evolving it's not drafting for potential because potential as it was sort of ignominiously uh defined during the high school era was just saying what kind of player could you grow into i see who you could be you're the next so-and-so let's see you do that or not do that i think when you're talking about potential in kind of a more multifarious sense where it's saying okay how many things can you do well what kind of skills do you have how many different ways could we potentially be using you down the road that might be like the single most valuable kind of modern era draft commodity is and it's not it's not even really the same as as being versatile um because i think being versatile i think is just often a very literal he is a good passing big man it's more kind of looking at a guy's game and seeing kind of how valuable it is you know how many different ways you could use it and this goes back to the whole building the idiosyncratic system you want players where you have the most amount of flexibility around their game. So when you have to build that system, you're not sort of stuck putting a square peg into a round hole because you sort of, by process of elimination, have to put a guy somewhere, even if it's not going to be the perfect fit for him. Am I making any sense? I feel like we're like in a high level abstraction here. No, I, I think that you are. But I want to take a quick moment to tell you about TrueCar. If you're looking to buy a car, you're probably familiar with terms like MSRP. You might even know what it stands for, but what does it actually mean? The same goes for invoice, list price, and dealer price. It's enough to confuse anybody. All you're really looking for is a price that actually means something. Introducing True Price from True Car. Now you can know exactly what you'll pay for the car you want, including fees and accessories, before you even get to the dealership. True Car dealers will show you the true price on cars like the one you want, all from the comfort of home. And how do you know if your true price is a great price? Because True Car shows you what other people paid for the same car you want. And certified dealers know this, so they set their true price competitively so they can win your business. So when you're ready to buy a new or used car, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. It goes in another direction as well, which is something that I've become more in tune on in recent years, which is the idea of if what they're really good at at the college or international, whatever level, doesn't work in the NBA, what value are they providing? So... Can't so if let's say like with Lonzo Ball was a good example of this for me because he, he was later enough after I kind of changed my thoughts on this though I still had him high in the draft it was okay so if things work out for him the argument is you know great passer solid defender good rebounder and his jump shot will be good enough that teams have to respect it and so it's like okay well then what is he going to be if his jump shot isn't good enough what if he can't generate separation and I think where a lot of these guys failed was there are two different camps of why they failed one is they weren't able to good they weren't just good enough to do what succeeded what what allowed them to succeed another level i would say to a degree evan turner was the same way as well the other part of it is players who couldn't adjust from being the guy because almost every nba player was the best or second best player on their college team to being a support player so that could be the example of like oj mayo so oj mayo 
spectacular college player at SC for a lot of moments and great in high school, obviously, as well. But he wasn't one of the 30 best NBA players and was pretty much never going to be. So then he always had to adjust his game to become a complimentary piece. And there were other demons and other things in the way. And who knows, maybe he still has the time to make a comeback. But what you do if that part of it doesn't work, and you can think the other way is somebody like Tony Allen. Like People forget how good Tony Allen was as a scorer and offensive player in college. It's just that A, his jump shot isn't, as to, from what I recall, isn't as good as it was then. And B, they're just way better offensive players in the NBA than there were when he was at Oklahoma State. So he became a defensive player because he always had the physical tools to do it, and that was a better use of his effort and focus and all that kind of stuff. It also gets funny, too, because college... Part of the selling point is you can be the man at X, Y, or Z school. And the thinking has always been you go to a school that gives you a platform to show how great you can be and that increases your draft stock. I wonder if the opposite isn't true. And the best thing you can do as a you know, future or potentially potential NBA player is to play with as much other talent as possible so you and scouts get a sense for how you actually can kind of in a hierarchical sense fall in line but also sort of how you can interact with other high-level players where there's not sort of an expectation that at any given time you can do most things better than everyone else. I think when I find myself sort of like fervently advocating for things that I'm, I, you know, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm pro-cal. But, you know, that's the thing about, about going to a program that is like saturated with talent is it is in some ways going to be better experience and provide better information for scouts. Because you're you're in like a fantasy world when I'm just I mean, we've been talking about so many like failed college stars that I can't pick one, but you know to some degree like those guys put themselves in a situation that was going to be like a vehicle or a showcase for them doing the thing they did well well and you're just saying they weren't forced to kind of evolve their game or shift their game or kind of dimensionalize their game in a way that they would have to when they were at a level where they no longer got to be the guy. It certainly changes and challenges the way that you evaluate players. I mean, Harden got that responsibility at Arizona State and delivered. And Markel Fultz, a little bit different at UW. Whereas if you are a step below that, it's the weirdest thing because I think you could also make the argument that if you're a little bit less confident in your ability, being a smaller fish in a bigger pond is a very helpful thing for you. And the best example I can use here are all the guys who played power forward at Duke. So some of those guys have ended up becoming more versatile, talented NBA players. So this could be Jabari Parker was one of those guys. Justice Winslow was one of them as well. And so, you know, Justice Winslow... I think that helped protect us a little bit because the only shots he really took in that system were pretty open twos or threes, either at the basket or from the three-point line. And he did a pretty good job on that. And then he defended well enough. He worked hard on that end. He had limited responsibilities. And what that ended up doing for his draft stock was, oh, okay, he does this stuff well. He's not going to have to do much more than that because he's not going to be the Harden, the Curry, or whatever. But he was in such a favorable circumstance that I think it allowed people to get a false sense of confidence that he was going to be able to replicate that at the next level, as opposed to it just being fortunate circumstances and a, a him doing well in a small sample. When you're talking about Winslow, I think there's also, it's weird to think that college actually is a smokescreen. You actually get these players, I'm not saying they've hoodwinked scouts, but you get scouts sort of falling in love with these like shiny college stars and it's actually make giving that it's uh, it's putting them in a position to fall and to, to be tempted 
by what's obviously kind of like this bad faith version of scouting. And I think it's interesting to think about, imagine a draft class where everyone was doing the kind of thing that they would presumably do at an NBA level, and they'd been sort of accurately positioned on their team in terms of how good they were, and how much responsibilities allot them. And that was what you were looking at to evaluate talent. I mean, I feel like then you would there'd be far fewer complete and total screw-ups which is really weird to think that it's kind of maybe ended up being boot because of what's happening with the NCAA and the NBA. But the idea that that contracting the NCAA would have at any given point massively improved scouting for the NBA, I think it's kind of a bizarre and interesting theory. There's another reason why I've gotten back into watching high school guys for going to the Hoop Summit and Adidas Nations when I can. And this year I did Basketball Without Borders and really enjoyed it. And it's because if you're going to those games in those circumstances, as opposed to just like a high school game, AAU is the same type of thing if you go to a high-level tournament. You're seeing those guys play with and against players, but oftentimes in a little bit more of a jumbled format, which I actually think is somewhat more appropriate because... At a certain point, you know, it's maybe it's more like summer league than the NBA, but at a, but there there's synergies there where it's just like, okay, what do you do well? What do I do well? But we're both really good. And a lot of times that's what the NBA is. It's feeling out what a talent level is. And when you're coaching, it's like, okay, well, whose talent at a specific thing is good enough that we're going to make that the focus of our game plan? And that gets into the D'Antoni Harden thing as well. And I've actually enjoyed it because you can tell, okay, if a guy stands out in this setting... And oftentimes you're you're standing on the shoulders of other people who do the real legwork because the only way you can go to an event like that is if somebody else thinks you're good. And what I do mm-hmm. is impossible to do without those people working hard and being good at their jobs because if they were bad at it, then I couldn't do what I do. So it's interesting how you draw those things together. But I, I agree with you, actually, that in many circumstances, that context is more valuable than sometimes what a guy does in, in college. And There are certainly, I'm sure, people who can filter out the noise with college and get to more of the signal, but there are a lot of mistakes there, too. And it it is surprising that those don't get talked about as much. I mean, I think it's to get really paranoid about it. It's because everyone had a everyone had a vested interest in players playing college. But that's the thing: the NBA's only vested interest in players playing college ball really was that they didn't want to have to like carry dead weight on their roster. Well, and it's it's also ludicrous because the NBA does not profit from in in a in much of a direct way from college basketball being as big. They play on the same days of the week. They play the same time of the year, and there is not a direct correlation between college stars and NBA stars in terms of box office, unless they're actually good. You know, a Mm -hmm. lot of these college stars, I mean, Jimmer, he captivated a lot of different people. Durant did too. Well, Durant ended up being a great pro. I don't think anybody is going to, even in Texas, is going to Warriors games to see Kevin Durant because of what Kevin Durant did at Texas. They're going to see him because he's an awesome NBA player. And those two things are Mm -hmm. largely separate. So, I think the NBA has, they've seen this as a symbiotic relationship, and it absolutely has not been one for at least a decade, probably a lot longer than that. You had this very weird visceral reaction to these players being picked where no one knew who they were. They were almost, in every case, a year, in some cases, a couple years away from really coming to their own. And I just think there was a weird panic around it because it was somehow seen as compromising the quality of the league. You know, we're making, making it so, you know, teams were. You know, your team is a lottery team. They draft someone. No one knows who they are. Everyone's 
not stoked heading into the year. The person does nothing. Everyone's bummed out. And I think the league just sort of anecdotally saw these cases and thought like, well, this isn't good for business. But, you know, if you take the long view, like we are right now, because we're brilliant, you know, unless you really are that worried about spending a year of NBA salary on someone who's not ready to play in every way, it behooves you as as a franchise to not have to deal with college noise and have it like skew your opinion of someone. Beyond that, the arguments that I've seen that have been the most persuasive have been that college is not as good at developing NBA players as the NBA is, even if those guys aren't playing very much. And so, That's true too. <laughs> you, and I think that would only be stronger now than it was then, because now the NBA is such a bigger business. You think about all the revenue that's coming in now through the national, through the TV contract and everything else that, and teams are just broadly speaking, better run than they used to be. So if you draft an 18 year old, you're not just going to be sitting there going, oh, he'll figure it out. He'll sleep on somebody's couch. You're going to put, you know, people in their lives to make sure that they that you give them the best chance. That does not mean that every single talented 17 and 18 year old is going to succeed if they get drafted in the NBA now. I, they absolutely will not. And certain players will fail. They always have. They always will. That's just the way this works. But there are a bunch of different ways that college can lead to people failing. I mean, one of them is even just the academic component of this. And Durant talked about this a little bit, the idea of the balance in college versus in the pros. Oh, uh, earlier this week, he said, to effect, there is a massive adjustment to be made whenever you truly become a professional in basketball. That is playing against other professionals and that being your entire job. And even if you want to say that the academics are a sham at some of these schools, and at some of them it very well might be, at others it's completely legitimate, they can't think of themselves that way because it's a responsibility. They're on a college campus, they're dealing with other college students, they're doing all this. Whereas if you're a professional, even if it's at a lower level of competition than the NCAA, that's your job. That's the way you're seeing it. You're spending time in the weight room, the way you approach nutrition, all that kind of stuff. It is a very different thing. And that is another thing that the NBA has going for it that they probably didn't appreciate back then. Well, it also gets into, to get super sinister about it, it gets into sort of ideas about control. And you can, this is like totally 100% why I think the NBA is talking about having these relationships with high school players. I mean, it's some degree control, some degree monitoring, it's some degree, just like you're saying, more like obviously altruistic, like training and conditioning. But the sooner you can get guys thinking about themselves that way, and if not able to fully function that way, because yes, obviously you have to go to high school the same way you have to go to college, but the more you can sort of start to acclimate them to the NBA workplace, the better chance you have of them being suited for that workplace and if you understanding how they fit into that workplace. Yeah, I think that's a, a healthy way of thinking about it. And I know one of the arguments back in the day that the NBA used was that they wanted to get agents out of high school gyms. They never left. And everyone knew they were yeah. never going to leave. It just they tried to separate themselves from it. But that was never going to happen. I mean, it, there, you just created this black market, essentially, of what college basketball is, where you could say the NBA was separated from it for a point. But then all those players are in the NBA and they're dealing with all that crap. So it it all it did was it took a lot of step below ground. And then the other part that college does is it creates this massive amount through the NCAA tournament and everything else. It creates this massive amount of revenue because people want to see the games and all of that. 
but you can only funnel so much of it to the people that are actually generating the revenue. So it just creates all these other black market, if you want to put it that way, all the stuff that's coming out right now, the coaches getting paid a lot of money because they're the people you can actually pay, and all of these other elements that the NBA doesn't need to concern themselves with that because it's not their responsibility. But it's kind of wild that the NCAA was so enthusiastic about this when it in certain ways is their undoing. Yeah, and I think the NCAA is extremely stupid and did not really fully recognize what they were getting into. I mean, now they hate, you know, one and done. Like Emirates said things like, you know, Emirates essentially said one and done is bad for the NCAA. And I think, we're, you know, we're also not really talking about the player angle here. We've been talking about essentially like how it's good for teams, how it makes it easier for the scout. But, you know, because the NBA is way more a player's league than in, in other major sports, you can also see how a situation, you know, avoiding, not only avoiding being like exploited by the NCAA, but also just being put in a better position to succeed professionally, you know, through whatever kind of feeder system they set up. I mean, like that's something that like the players are going to be all for because it, it you know, it, it's going to help things competitively, but it's also just like a player's, it is immensely beneficial for them as, as professionals to sort of be professionalized early on instead of going through this like weird limbo in college when it's not clear exactly how they're being groomed. Um, there's also a whole other thing that I could get into if we had even more time about how maybe it's not the most fair thing because it essentially creates a tracking system. But I think, you know, on the whole, you can see how people, how players would ride for this idea of not having to go through college, not just, you know, for money reasons, but also because it's not setting them up for success in a tangible way. Yeah, I absolutely can see why they would do it. And and NBA teams, from what I understand, when allowed, obviously that's a restriction and they, they're there can be discussions about what that should be. They're keeping an eye on guys in high school because they know that's a relevant sample for them to look at anyway. You know, Michael Porter Jr. Is, an, is a great example of this. He just returned. We're recording this on Thursday afternoon. He just played in basically his third through whatever th- minutes as a, as a college player at Missouri because of the back issue. Well, NBA teams aren't super freaked out about not seeing him this year because they have covered him and analyzed him so much from his time in high school. So if all you did was remove that year of college, certain players would fall under the radar for sure, obviously. But a lot of the best of the best are established commodities to a point. And so you are getting a different sample with them, but it it wouldn't be this big adjustment for the NBA to just start letting in high school kids again from a scouting perspective. Yeah, it, it is sort of world historic snow job that again, the high school era was kind of demonized as this awful irresponsible time when players just ran roughshod over poor manager or poor front offices. And you know, it's just like, it wasn't really that bad. And it's never really in some way stopped. And what we go to next is going to resemble it more than I think we'll acknowledge. You know, I think people are going to cast whatever happens in the next like five, 10 years as some sort of massive revolution. But I think that's also dependent on thinking that once things were so bad, that the age limit happened. And it's like, no, the age limit happened because Stern had some kooky notions about what would actually be best for not just scouts, but also for like the business interests, as you said, of the league. Yeah, you and I could probably go on for a whole nother hour in this vein, but I feel like we have to pick a stocking point, and this is as good as any. So unless there's something urgent that you're thinking that you want to have out there in this conversation, if if so, I absolutely welcome it. Otherwise, I will thank you for taking the time. I think this completely scrambled my brain because we got into so many things. So (laughs) thank you for having me.
Thanks again to Nathaniel for taking the time to come on. You can read him at GQ. That's pretty damn cool. You can also check out he edits at Victory Journal. And you can also support, this is just a, a personal thing for me. The two Free Darko books are absolutely fabulous. I'm looking at them on the bookshelf now. The Macro Phenomenal ba- Pro Basketball Almanac and The Undisputed Guide to Pro Basketball. Both great. Two of my favorites on the topic. And you can check those out as well. I haven't reread them recently, but I can imagine that they're going to age really well. And then, of course, you can follow Nathaniel on Twitter at FreeDarko, F-R-E-E-D-A-R-K-O. A lot going on right now in the world of basketball. And I thought it was good to kind of do something apart from a lot of that that still does connect with it, of course, with the MVP race and, and everything else and the age limit stuff, which I find very interesting and have a personal connection with as well because my feelings on it. And so I wanted to do something different. I hope you enjoyed the ride. I will do that from time to time. I, I like to try to balance it out. And Nathaniel's a great guy to talk to for all of that. If you want to leave any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com is the way to do that. If you take the time to write, I will take the time to read. I can't promise I'll respond, A, because I get a lot of stuff, and B, because I'm super busy. But I promise that I will read it because that is exceedingly important to me. And you kind of have to take it on faith to a point. I will respond to some people, but trust me, I do. They're always on there. If you want to support the podcast, there are a lot of great ways you can do that. You can leave a rating. You can leave a review in the podcast player you're choosing. As the functional reality, it's great if it's iTunes because iTunes is just so big in our business that if you do it there, it makes more of a difference. You can also subscribe, download every episode. Great thing to do with Real Jam Radio because it comes out on different days depending on on what's going on. You can also check out our sponsors for this episode. That is BetDSI. You can get a 200% member bonus and more bracket contest entries on your first deposit by using the promo code MADGM, M-A-D-G-M, and TrueCar. Great place to buy new and used cars. You should check out TrueCar. Really do appreciate having them as sponsors. And as I said in the intro... My assumption is next week will be prospect focused because the NTA tournament is upon us, as I mentioned also when talking about BetDSI. So I assume that's going to be the direction I go. Not completely sure. One of the funny things that happened this week was I was thinking about going in a bunch of different directions. And so I reached out to a series of people and may have lined up the next couple episodes. We'll see. But very excited to see where it goes. Appreciate all of you for listening. You can also check out my work everywhere, really. I mean, Dunked On with Nate, Twitter NBA Show with Nate. I'll at some point bring Warriors Watch back, and then my writing for Real GM, of course, for The Athletic, and for Sporting News when I have the opportunity. And I'm so thankful that I have outlets that are supportive of me and and also at the same time patient. And I am starting the work. They will not come out for a while because it's not that time yet, but I'm starting work on my off-season previews where I do all 30 teams. So I'm really looking forward to that. It is a large amount of legwork to get them all even started, much less ready, but I love doing it. And that's the reason why I keep doing it. So thank you to everybody who makes all of this possible. Thank you for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Microsoft Surface Pro 8 has the power of a laptop and the versatility of a tablet. 
all in one. This thin and adaptable device has a touchscreen and a newly designed signature keyboard that can even store your Surface Pen. Surface Pro 8 is Microsoft's most powerful pro yet. Show the world how you stand out with Surface Pro 8. Check it out at surface.com slash Surface Pro 8. The world around us is smart. We think your education should be smart, too. With the FlexPath learning format from Capella University, you can set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move forward at your pace. Visit capella.edu to learn more. Capella University. Don't just learn, learn smarter.